want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5 as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. I remember quite clearly the first time I ever swore. I was, some of you just looked up. I was 10 years old, grade five, behind the school gym at Lincoln Centennial Elementary in St. Catharines on Scott Street. I had gotten into some kind of verbal altercation with a uh, fellow classmate named Stephen, and uh, somehow it had degenerated into name calling. He would call me a name, and I, I guess I wasn't feeling very creative. I would simply echo back whatever he called me. And this went back and forth until suddenly I heard words coming out of my mouth that I had never said before. And that was the end. It stunned me probably far more than it stunned Stephen. I walked away, and that was the end of our altercation. Doing what I did on that occasion many years ago, responding in kind, he called me a nasty name, so I called him a nasty name in return, is the, the natural human way of responding, fallen, broken, sinful human way of responding. Someone calls you a name, and you call them a name right back. Someone hits you, you hit them back. Someone hurts you, you hurt them back. Someone cuts you off on the road, and you let them know your displeasure and your estimation of who they are. That is the natural, reflexive way, humanly speaking, of responding. But it is not the Jesus way. It is not the way of the gospel. When the gospel takes root in our lives, when the Holy Spirit is having His way in us, we begin to respond differently. We respond with what the Bible calls, what Jesus calls, meekness. That's what Jesus is going to tell us in the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek. That's what we're unpacking this morning. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount uh, provides us with a picture of what our life will look like, what the life of a person looks like when they hear and believe the good news. When God is having his way in our lives, our lives are transformed. We grow to be men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, whose lives are radically altered. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, the ethics of the inbreaking kingdom. Uh, these are, we, we cannot live this way by our own striving, by our own effort, by our own strength, but when the gospel breaks in, when God's kingdom reign takes over our lives, when the, the gospel takes root in our hearts, our lives are changed, and the gospel produces this kind of life. If we forget that, that this is not something we can achieve by our own striving and strength, if we forget that, then this will become, as Daryl Johnson so brilliantly puts it, frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism, something we can never live up to or something that will absolutely crush us. But this is the ethics of the kingdom. This is what is produced in us by the gospel. The Beatitudes provide us with a picture of Christian character. These characteristics, these qualities are produced in our lives, in a person's life, when the gospel takes root. We begin to become men and women, young and old, who look like this, the Beatitudes. Remember, these are not, 
These eight Beatitudes are not describing eight different people, eight different kinds of Christians, that, that one is poor in spirit, another mourns, that another is meek, someone else hungers and thirsts after righteousness, etc. These are not eight different people. No, these, these qualities, these characteristics, are, uh, they, they are all interrelated and inseparable. They all belong together, and they are all produced in the life of every gospelized man, woman, or child. Likewise, we need to remember that they are not natural human qualities. Jesus did not show up in Galilee and begin walking around looking for beatitude people. Jesus came announcing the inbreaking of God's kingdom. He announced the good news. And as the, the gospel was heard and believed, men and women began to be shaped like this. They became poor in spirit. They began to mourn. They became meek. These qualities, these characteristics are produced in us through the gospel. Likewise, not only are these qualities and characteristics all interrelated and belong together, but so too the promises, the blessings that Christ announces. They are all aspects of what it means to receive and be in the kingdom. Remember, the Beatitudes are sandwiched. The promises of the first and the eighth are theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That, that all the six promises between those are just different aspects of what it means to receive the kingdom. That when we receive the kingdom of heaven, when we are welcomed into God's family, we are comforted, we are promised that we will inherit the earth, we are satisfied, filled, we receive mercy, we see God, we are called the children of God. They all go together. Nonetheless, as I've said, the order is of significance. The first beatitude is the essential beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, the entrance into the kingdom, what we hear when we hear the good news is that through Christ we receive mercy and grace. That, that we, we cannot clean ourselves up. We don't come with anything, no merit. We come to God in need of his mercy and we receive it. Blessed are the poor in spirit when, when we realize that we have empty hands, that we are spiritually bankrupt. Then we receive the kingdom. And when that happens, we begin to mourn. We begin to mourn because we see the darkness of our own hearts. We see the wickedness of our sin, our rebellion against God who loves us, who is good. And not only our sin, but we see the sin of the world. We see the mess around us, the brokenness of the world, and we mourn because we know it doesn't have to be this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The first leads into the second, and this morning we're going to see that the first and second lead into the third. The third beatitude, Jesus speaks is this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Earl Palmer writes this, the Beatitudes are not a mild and sentimental collection of platitudes. They are a frontal challenge to almost everything we assume about the way it is in the world. Let me read that again. The Beatitudes are not a mild and sentimental collection of platitudes. They are a frontal challenge to almost everything we assume about the way it is in the world. 
That is certainly the case once more as we come to this third beatitude. The meek are blessed. The meek inherit the earth. Really, Jesus? How, how is that true? It's not what seems to be going on when we look around us. It, it seems instead that the strong ones win. That the, the mighty prevail. That the powerful and domineering, they get what they want. How, Jesus, can you say that the meek are blessed, that the meek inherit the earth? Really, Jesus? How? What is Jesus saying here? What does he mean when he speaks this third beatitude? Let's look first at what meekness is not. Daryl Johnson writes this, the, the quality that Jesus blesses in the third beatitude has nothing to do with all the negative images triggered by the English word meek. We hear the word meek and we think some things. Now, nailing down, pinning down exactly what the Greek word behind meek means is a bit tricky. There's a lot of nuance and we're going we're gonna to work our way through that. But, but meekness does not mean weakness. John Stott writes this, we, we hear the word meek, we often think weak and effeminate, but that is to get the meaning of this word wrong. Meek does not mean weak. It, it does not mean the absence of conviction. It does not mean the absence of courage. It, it does not mean the absence of a spine. To be meek does not mean that you are wishy-washy, that you are passive, that you are timid, that you are a doormat. That is not what it means to be meek. So what does meekness mean? Positively, what, what does it mean to be meek? Again, a little tricky to pin this down, but, but the Greek word translated here as meek is translated elsewhere with the word gentle. Galatians 5, in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, we read, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, same word, and self-control. So meekness, gentleness, it's the same Greek word. Uh, elsewhere, this word carries the notion of, of humility, of being humble, a humble attitude towards others. So meekness includes both gentleness and humility, but there are two other ideas that can help us further. The first is the idea of self-control. John Stott writes this, the, the Greek adjective praus means gentle, humble, considerate, courteous, and therefore, listen to this, exercising the self-control without which these qualities would be impossible. If you're going to be gentle and humble and considerate and courteous, you need a, a Measure of self-control because you may not naturally respond in those ways. So there's this element of self-control. Uh, one author puts it this way, defines it this way, that, that meekness is strength under control. D.A. Carson adds one other element when he says, meekness is a controlled desire to see the other's interests advanced ahead of one's own. There's a lot there. There's a lot packed into this little word. Meekness, then, is not asserting yourself over others to advance your own cause. Rather, it is choosing the interests of others ahead of your own. It 
necessarily includes selflessness, therefore, renouncing your own rights, putting your trust in God, so you don't have to assert your rights. You don't have to defend yourself. You, you can trust God with whatever's going on. All of that is in this word. Instead of standing up and defending ourselves and fighting for our rights, we follow the example of Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, we read this. When they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was meek. Jesus was descri- described himself this way in Matthew 11. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. I am meek and humble in heart. We follow the example of Jesus. We don't fight for our rights. We don't stand up for ourselves. We don't respond in kind, but with strength under control, caring for the interests of others instead of ourselves, trusting ourselves into the hands of God, to him who judges justly. A second idea that will also help what we've already said so far, what I've said so far, is is to think about how you view yourself in relationship to both God and others. In relationship to God, the first beatitude says we're poor in spirit. The gospel, we hear it, we believe it, it takes root in our hearts, and we are those who are poor in spirit. We realize that we come to God as broken, sinful, rebellious men and women, boys and girls, who have no merit. We come to God with nothing. We deserve only his judgment. We come empty-handed and receive his mercy and his love. Meekness, in meekness, we are recognizing that same reality, but now in the context of relationships with one another. Okay, listen to what John Stott writes. He says this, I myself am quite happy to recite the general confession in church and call myself a miserable sinner. It causes me no great problem. I can take it in stride. But let somebody else come up to me after church and call me a miserable sinner, and I want to punch them in the nose. In other words, I am not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me what I have just acknowledged before God that I am. There is a basic hypocrisy there always is when meekness is absent. It is one thing for me to stand before you and say I am a man in need of grace, that I am not a perfect pastor, that I've screwed up in a myriad of ways, that I fail regularly. It would be another thing for you to line up and start telling me the ways in which I've failed you. That would require meekness so that I don't punch you in the nose. You see the difference? We recognize before God our bankruptcy, but if you say that to me, That requires meekness. Meekness is a true view of who I am in my relationships with others. It it means that I don't have to make myself look good. I don't have to protect or defend or shape my reputation. I can can face whatever comes. I don't don't need to, whether whether it's right or it's unjust. Meekness means I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to 
make myself look good. I, I don't need to lash out in kind. Meekness allows for no room for pride and arrogance in my relationship with others. I know that I come before God. We know that we stand before God empty-handed. Meekness means that we don't need to squirm uncomfortably when, when someone else names that truth about us. We are sinners saved by grace. And we can hear that from others. And we can even hear things that are unjust and wrong. And we don't need to lash out or defend or worry. I want to take a few moments now to, to highlight, to flesh out for you, for us, what this looks like. And uh, I'm going to point to a number of biblical stories. But before we do that, I want us to focus your attention on Psalm 37. Psalm 37 speaks about meekness. In fact, uh, many scholars believe that Jesus would have had Psalm 37 firmly in his mind as he pronounced this third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, writes this, There is no finer exposition of the third beatitude than this psalm from which it is drawn. Listen to verse 11 of Psalm 37. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Throughout this psalm, over and over and over again, it's a longer psalm, 40 verses, we encounter this theme of God's people, the meek, inheriting the land. Verse 9, for those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 22, those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but those he curses will be destroyed. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Here's the issue that the psalmist David is wrestling with. The reality that when he looks around himself, it seems like the powerful, the domineering, the ruthless ones are the ones who win. They're the ones who get ahead. They're the ones who come out on top. They're the ones that get the land. They're the haves. That's what he sees when he looks around. But contrary to all appearances, David in Psalm 37 makes the startling claim that the meek will inherit the earth, the land, that the gentle, the gentle come out on top. In light of that fact, David spells out throughout the psalm the ways, the, the things that the meek do and the things that the meek do not do. The meek trust in the Lord and do good. The meek commit their way to the Lord. The, the verb translated there, commit, literally is a word that means roll. So you, you, you roll your, your, your life, your everything, onto God. Here's how Stuart Briscoe uh, uses that image to get at what the meek do. The meek roll their lives, their cares, their reputations onto the Lord, and then let the Lord worry about it all. The meek are those who, when offended, commit their wounded egos, and the one offending their ego to the perfect judge. The meek can say to herself, what she did to me was wrong, but she's answerable to God, so I'll let God deal with her. But I am answerable to God too, so I'm going to concentrate on doing right by her. The meek trust the Lord and do good. They commit their way to the Lord. They roll everything onto the Lord. We read in verse 1 and verse 8, the meek do not fret. Literally, that means get hot. The, the meek do not get hot with anger, 
They do not fret. Daryl Johnson says this, the meek do not get hot under the collar. How many of us waste enormous amounts of energy and time stewing over people who offend us and take advantage of us or ignore us? The meek do not get hot under the collar. The meek do not fret. They trust in the Lord. They commit their way to the Lord. Instead of fretting, the meek do good in the face of evil. They do not respond to violence with violence. They do good. They trust in the Lord and do good. David Worth says, they do the godly thing and let the chips fly. I like that. The meek also delight themselves in the Lord. They fix their eyes on the Lord. Not on all the wrong around them, not on the wrong that is directed towards them, but on the Lord who has promised that the meek will indeed inherit the land, the earth. I don't know what thoughts cross your mind as we unpack this, what it means to be meek, what meekness looks like. There is much in our world about which to mourn. We saw that last week. There is great sin and brokenness. There are forces that rage against God's desire. But my question is this. Us who are believers, disciples of Jesus, the, the Christian church today, could we be described as those who respond in meekness? Or, or do we respond in kind? The world tries to dominate. Do we try and dominate back? The world uses force. Do we try and use force back? Or do we do good, trusting God with whatever? There is much to mourn about. There is much to be concerned about. But we, we must not embrace the ways of the world. We must not be like me in that schoolyard, just doing what the world does and saying, well, it's for a good cause. He was a jerk. That wasn't the word I used. We must not respond in kind. And so my question is, as the church today, when the world looks at us, do they see men and women who are responding out of meekness, who are trusting the Lord, who are not fretting, who are rolling everything onto the Lord and doing good, come what may, letting the chips fly? That's what we're called to be. That's the response the gospel produces in us. Let's look briefly at several biblical stories where we see meekness fleshed out. There's a story of Abram and his nephew Lot. Their herds and flocks grow and it comes to a place where they're squabbling and they need to part company. And Abram, who is the senior of them, who had the authority in that day, he had every right in that culture to say, Lot, you go over there and I'm going to take this land. But Abram defers to Lot. He says, Lot, you choose. You choose where you want to go. And Lot chose the better, more fertile land. And, and Abram said, okay, you have it. And I will take mine and go here. That is an example of meekness. Moses, other than Jesus, Moses is the only individual in Scripture who is described as meek. Moses, faithfully leading God's people, not, not without his own problems and struggles, but in Numbers 12, his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam begin to grumble about him. You know that story? They begin to complain about Moses. It would have been very shameful for him. And rather than lashing out, he humbly entrusts himself to God, and God deals with 
that issue. There's a story of King David. Both as a young man before he came king, God had told him he knew that he was destined to be the king of Israel. And in Saul's court, Saul threw spears at him. David refused to throw spears back. And later when he was an old man, an old king, and his son Absalom rebelled against him, David does not lash out in kind. David walks away alone. Examples of meekness. But the greatest example, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. God put on flesh and became a man. Jesus came from heaven and lived on this earth. Humble beginnings. And as his earthly life was drawing to an end, he is arrested on false charges. He is arrested. He is mocked. He is spit upon. Imagine that for a moment. I don't know if we pause and think. People spitting on him. Utterly shameful. Hitting him. He is flogged. He is nailed to a cross. And he suffers. This is the God of the cosmos who could call angels in a moment. The one with all power in the universe is his. And yet for our sake, he stayed there. They mocked him and said, ah, if you're the son of God, come down. And he stayed for the very ones who mocked him. He put the interests of us ahead of his own. He suffered in our place for our good, for for our salvation. He, the king of the cosmos, meekly choosing to suffer in our place. Paul in Philippians, if you were with us through our series, you know these verses. The challenge to us in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in a human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Strength under control. Putting the interests of others ahead of your own. That is what meekness is. You want to see what meekness is? You want to see who you and I are to become as the gospel takes root? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as the gospel takes root. The truth that in Christ we are forgiven. In Christ we are redeemed. In Christ we are made alive. In Christ we inherit the earth. In Christ we have all things. And so we need not fear We need not fight back. We need not lash out. We need not defend ourselves. But for the sake of others, do good and entrust our lives to the Lord. The promise is that the the, the meek are blessed and the meek will inherit the earth. Jesus announces to the meek, congratulations. You are the fortunate ones. You lucky bums, you who are meek. For you will inherit the earth. 
There is both a future and a present reality to that promise. First, it means that those who are meek, those who know who they are and what they have received in Christ, that there is a contentment that we will have and live with that those around us who do not know Jesus will simply not have. They will pursue things, whether it's the advancement of their reputation or the possession of certain things. People around us will pursue those things seeking contentment. And those who are in Christ, who have received his grace, who have received new life, who know that we are secure, who know that we have been promised all things, that we can live with a contentment that will elude those around us. Because in Jesus, we have all things. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, He's describing himself and his his colleagues in ministry through their suffering, through all kinds of things that they endured. And he says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich as they proclaim the gospel, having nothing, yet possessing everything, possessing everything. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writing to the same church, they've been fighting, They, they fight about a lot of things in that church. They're fighting about which leader is better and who they're aligning with. And, and he, he's talked about that and said, cut it out. He says, so, so then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is not just scriptural rhetoric. This is true. In Christ, we are heirs. In Christ, we we are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are adopted by the Heavenly Father. All that is His is ours, and all is His. And so all things, we are are loved, we are accepted, we, we are called to a purpose, we are secure, we win because Christ has won. We live even if we get killed. Nothing can harm us. We are invincible. Because we are in Christ. I don't know how many of you read the bulletin or the recommended read. I think the book that's in there right now, uh, Captive in Iran, I think is the title. The story of Marzia and Mariam, two young Iranian women. They came to Christ, and then over a course of of a number of years, they, 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 they came to Christ out of the country. They went back to Iran, and they asked uh, their pastor friend in, I think, England to send them like tons of Bibles. And over the course of a couple of years, every night, Mariam and Marzia would load backpacks with New Testaments and they would go out and walk around different places in Tehran, the capital of Iran. And they would leave New Testaments in people's mailboxes. For two years, they distributed over 20,000 New Testaments. They hosted two house churches in their home until finally they were arrested. They were imprisoned in a horrific place threatened with death. The government wanted them to recant, wanted them to stop doing what they were doing. And these two courageous women just kept doing what they were doing. Humbly, gently, meekly, sharing the hope of Christ. The very prison walls meant to shut them up became a church. They they proclaimed the gospel and hope to so many women. And the church in Iran kept growing 
And you know, there's nothing that all the, the might and the power and the threats of Iran can do to stop the gospel. But the gospel advances not with the ways of this world, but through meekness, through trusting the Lord and doing good. And these two young women so bravely, so courageously just kept faithfully proclaiming Christ. There was nothing they could stop them. They said, you can kill us, whatever. Because they understood that in Christ they had all things, that in Christ they were invincible, that in Christ the earth would one day be theirs. All things were theirs. In Christ we win. In Christ we live now and forever. E. Stanley Jones writes this, everything belongs to the man, the woman, who wants nothing. He has God. That is enough. That is enough. And that's true for us in Christ right now. But there is also a future aspect to this promise. Jesus promises that one day we will indeed inherit the earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lost his life in a German prison, he he wrote these words, those who now possess it by violence and injustice shall lose it. And those who here have utterly renounced it, who were meek to the point of the cross, shall rule the new earth. There will be a glorious day, a day when all things are set right, when the curse is reversed, when the wicked will be judged and the meek will inherit the earth, a restored, renewed creation. We will rule together with Christ. That's the promise of God's word, that one day all things will indeed be ours. You remember how I responded to Stephen back in the schoolyard? I responded in kind. He called me a nasty name, and I just reflexively called him a nasty name right back. That behavior was not in sync with the kingdom of God, in sync with the gospel. See, when the gospel takes root in our hearts, when God's kingdom reign breaks into our world, we are changed, we are transformed. And we're no longer those who need to push to the front of the line. We don't need to control what other people think of us. We don't have to grab, clutch, and hold, but rather can be open-handed and generous and giving with our open hands. We don't have to defend ourselves because in Christ we are secure. We don't have to win now because in Christ our victory is sealed. We are gospelized. God's people, used by him, transformed by him, used by him to turn this messed up world upside down. We are his gentle revolutionaries. The the first century church, through the, the lives of first century believers, the Roman Empire was turned on its head. Not through aggression, not through anger, not through swords, but through meekness. Through gentle and humble women and men with nothing to lose because they knew that in Christ all was theirs and they entrusted themselves to the Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,
we pray that you would move in this place, that you would move in our hearts, in our lives, that you would make us meek. Lord, we repent of the ways, the times when we, when we embrace the ways of the world. We ask for your grace and we ask Holy Spirit to empower us, give us strength to be meek. Give us strength and courage to be humble and gentle. Enable us to entrust ourselves to you and to do good. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to celebrate.